0: Hello and welcome to our Diniz Guarda Cities ABC Open Business Council YouTube podcast series. And we are here for a new exciting uh, interview and profiling with a, lo- a leading global expert, in this case, in cities, architecture, and as well the founder of the platform that I'm very excited to profile today. Uh, Michael Jensen uh, is my um, guest today, and I welcome to our series. I'm actually quite excited um, about this because CityZ is an interesting platform that I'm very excited because I've been very focused on these areas of cities, smarter, smart cities, architecture, and all the solutions about these and special digital twins. So I've been just uh, looking a bit of a profile and excellent profile of Michael Jensen. So Michael is an impassionate architect, urbanist, and entrepreneur that has been working and led iGrove companies in the U.S and in Asia for the last two decades. Um, he studied architecture at Yale and Cambridge and earned a Fulbright scholarship um, and has been working as an architect in India, China, um, and as well in Asia uh, for the, some of the major US international architecture firms. Uh, in 2004, Michael founded the major beam services company in India backed by Sequoia Capital, which grew from 500 employees in just four years and in 2010, Michael took the helmet at Citizen Zenith as CEO and embarked on a personal mission to look at the way we use data to transform and build the environment and all the relationships with cities and world over. And there's been a feature in major global media and uh, as well organizations. And I'm particularly interested to look at the way um, a platform like Citizen Zenith can look at the way we look at data, but as well absorb and improve all the challenges that we have, both in the context of urbanism, the context of as well organizations, and how to take this forward. So welcome to our series, Michael. Very excited to have you here.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Fantastic. So I want to start, uh, so you have a fantastic background, both academic and both entrepreneurial. So let's start a bit with your background. So um, as well, very international background as well, and uh, uh, your studies, and a bit of your background on studies, and as well, even cultural background and and, uh, and country background. So I think it's important always to look, uh, especially in these days that we are in globalization.
1: Yes, I, I think so too, especially uh, given my journey, I think it did have an impact on um, what ultimately I ended up doing with this product. So uh, I, I'm an architect by training. I was born and raised in the Chicago area of uh, United States and um, where it's now snowing. I think we had eight inches of snow yesterday. Well, uh, yeah. I, I, I actually left here to go to university as a young man. I, I went to Yale University to study architecture in 1987 and uh, did that until 1991. Um, and subsequently went on to Cambridge in the UK, my first sort of international experience uh, to do my postgraduate work in architecture. So I was really on a traditional path to being a kind of career architect. Um, uh, During the Cambridge experience, I uh, had uh, become uh, friends with a, a dear mate who had been to China and uh, from since the early 80s, spoke fluent Chinese and kind of taught me a bit about what the country was like. Uh, I was interested in architecture, I was interested in art. Um, I then went back to Yale for a brief stint and uh, got involved with some Chinese artists, believe it or not, through a local gallery in New Haven and it got into my mind that maybe I should just go see China for myself. And in 1991, after formally leaving Yale, I I went to China for four years to study uh, originally Chinese painting and then architecture, and I went to a small town in South China, which was at that time small, now it's a huge town called Hangzhou, which is the the, the headquarters to Alibaba. Um, When I was in Hangzhou uh, studying calligraphy at Hangzhou University, Jack Ma was at the same school studying something else. it was a really interesting time when in China's history, when I kind of saw this country sort of coming together in amazing ways. And I think a couple of things really impacted me as a young man. Uh, Number one, um, the the country was building projects at an unprecedented scale. Uh, I was one of the youngest architects and the first ever Sino-US joint venture architecture firm in in Beijing in 1992-93 timeframe. And I was being thrown onto massive city scale projects that were 6 million feet, 8 million feet, 10 million feet as a, as, as a young architect. Uh, and I was immediately exposed to the complexity of basically building cities, if you will, from a very young age. Uh, secondly, uh, I really didn't have any ambitions to be an entrepreneur at all. I was very content to uh, proceed down the path of being a traditional professional architect someday. I, I only really had an interest in design, and, and I went to China not to make money, but to learn about the culture, and, and eventually became enthralled with the, the story there and all of that. And um, but what I saw was that in China, um, so many people around me were becoming entrepreneurs. I mean, people in the art school, people in the architecture, were just branching out, they had this expression in Chinese called xia'hai, uh, which means to dive into the ocean. So professors, you know, they're all xia'hai. I had to go in and try something different, open a company, you know, and it was really an incredible time. Um, around 1994, I wanted to, i had been in China for several years at that point, and I was getting uh, uh, sort, of, sort of itchy to go see some other parts of Asia, and um, I ended up applying for a Fulbright scholarship and and, and getting one to go to India for a a year in 1994 to 1995. And I I went there on a Fulbright to study Indian architecture. I I traveled around the country, visited 70 Indian cities and uh, made drawings and paintings and sketches of architecture from all over the country. Um, So by the 1995, I was kind of speaking Chinese, I was speaking Hindi, I was an architect in my mid 20s, the Asia architecture boom was unprecedented. uh, And, you know, my career seemed like it was going to be in in a good place at the time. Um, But again, I had no interest in opening a business. Uh, Instead, I I, uh, began working for a major US architectural practice, uh, who wanted me to set up Uh, an office for them in India. And it was really interesting how all that happened because I was really young. I was like 26 years old and I really would have liked to have been 40 to take on a challenge like that. But the firm felt that I could do this. So as a young man in his mid-20s, I was told you are going to be on the business side of the firm now. You're going to represent the company. You're going to learn marketing. You're going to talk to clients. You're going to make presentations. You're going to find accounts. You're going to manage accounts. They're going to be big accounts and here are your targets i really didn't know what to do so it was my first ever being thrown into the deep end and uh, i remember that experience very well because it kind of gave me the confidence that uh you know it's possible you can actually go create a story somewhere from nothing if you really work hard at it and i stayed with that company for a few years until uh, i moved to a, a similar firm that was only focused on hotel design and This firm was based in California, and I was maybe 29 at the time, and Asia was really exploding, and I had all these opportunities, and this firm was the most successful hotel design firm in the world, and the owner and I got along super well, and he told me, he's like, listen, come work with us, and if you do a good job, you know, you'll go places in this firm. I didn't know what that meant. Um, Within a couple of years, I had built the second largest office that that firm had, and I built it quickly by turning um, our office in New Delhi into a a drawing production factory, basically. And suddenly, within about two years, we were doing all of the back-end CAD design drawings for the entire firm around the world out of this one office that I was running in India. And it made the firm very profitable and very efficient. So it was like a secret sauce of some kind. I did that for a few years until I realized that, you know, if we can do this for one firm, why don't we create a company that can do this for several firms? And I wasn't sure if I could do it or if I had the skills, but I went ahead and did that, and I formed a company called Santelier which formally started in 2004. Um, the 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 how we got to Sequoia Capital investing in that business three years later is an incredible story, but um, it started off as a modest, uh, really determined group of people that came out of the previous experience uh, only knowing how to make hotel drawings and nothing else because we work for a hotel company if you can imagine that and we wanted to go and do all these other things for everybody else so i i went around new york city paris london san francisco seattle washington dallas you have all my tours were like 27 cities when i came to the u.s i would leave india i would do 27 cities in seven weeks eight weeks it was just night after night you know Atlanta one night, go to the hotel, midnight, boom, Dallas next night, it was that kind of thing. And signing up clients one after the next, I was kind of distributing this secret sauce around the industry of these these remote production teams. And by 2007, it got the attention of venture capitalists. Uh, The company was growing at 100% a year. CNN had rolled their cameras in when George Bush came to India in 2006, a big feature on my company and my work. So I started to get some... Um, notice in the industry. I won several awards that year. I was the 40 under 40 winner for the building design and construction magazine annual award they give to young folks, all that kind of thing. So my career was starting to get somewhere and I was learning a lot. Now that company got to a point where we had 400 clients. We were doing 30 work for 30 of the top 50 clients in the world, large architecture firms, engineering firms, largely. The projects were huge. We, we worked on the border in Dubai. We worked on Trump Tower in Vegas. We worked on very big stuff, you know? And because we had this, this, the, the capabilities to do that. But what was happening was that because again, I had all this big project exposure, um, we were seeing that that we had to develop skill sets in several software tools just to do these projects. And it was really becoming a problem for our clients. Uh, you know, one project would have three different Building information modeling tool, different GIS tool, different CAD tools. These are all different types of tools that architects, planners, and operators use to design and make buildings and infrastructure more efficient. And we said, you know, listen, there's got to be one tool which can do bring all this together somehow, right? I mean, there's gotta be like one giant 3D, you know, map of the world with all this data, where all these tools can kind of plug in and, and, and unplug that makes sense of all this. Otherwise, projects are just gonna get more and more complicated and uh, less efficient. And how does that work when the project trend is going in the direction? Right now, the world needs to build 10,000 new cities, as you know very well, in the next 40 years. So we've gotta find homes for 3 billion more people, right? So we're gonna to have to build thousands of new cities. We need tools to help us build cities, Denise. That's the whole point, point. we don't have them. We have a basket of tools today. We don't have any city-making tools, really. And I think that's where digital twins kind of come in nicely as the the tool that sits on top of that. And I I launched this company to try to make that company, which was uh, the company that could have that all-in-one platform, that kind of that real-world Sim City, if you will, that could integrate all these different data points of the planners, the facility managers, government officials, pedestrians could have common access to the data and be able to run sophisticated integrated analysis to make cities more efficient and that just doesn't happen in today's cities except for some of the most sophisticated as you know um, so i mean I, I could go on forever about that but my background uh, is essential to understanding how i got here i was one of the people struggling with the problems right and so in many ways i'm i'm my own customer too i'm trying to solve the problems that i experienced while i was working on these things as an architect and as a developer Earlier in my career, so anyway, um, it's a slightly longish answer, but it was uh, oh amazing. <laughs> no, no, actually, congratulations. <laughs> no,
0: because your background is is quite amazing. Because I love architecture, and I work in the beginning of my career actually with the major global architects, special French and, and Swiss, but as well global. And actually, I, I actually the the former curator of architecture of MoMA is a very good friend. Uh, as well. so. Um, but one of the things I understood from the architecture industry is that it's uh, quite demanding because there's a massive pressure. Uh, and there's a massive pressure to create projects and then win the projects, which is not a simple task but I think your background takes it to a completely different level, especially because you were in the right place in China and all this growth, which is quite amazing. And as well, that entrepreneurial part, of course, preparing for a lot of things. So I want to, before I go to, to the company and as well, the fantastic work you're doing with City Zenith, I want to talk first in terms of um, so in the architecture, so architecture is, is really quite um, an interesting background because it touches art, design, Um, planning and urbanism and as well a lot of ego in terms of you have to have a strong component to create really a profile as an architect but as well a component of the way you look at the city and the way you look at buildings and everything else and as well one thing that is particularly interesting is being a fan of architecture myself is that architecture has been as well on a fantastic roadmap because a lot of the tools we're using right now in terms of like you mentioned uh, all the cities kind of related tools came actually from architecture. And, and But but at the same time, it's still a mix of artisanal versus production. You have, uh, um, well, all the, the Frank, uh, all these massive global architects, Genovell, and, and uh, the other ones that have been creating entire teams and changing entire cities. Um, so I would like to touch that because you're studying two of the major universities in the world, Yale and Cambridge, and they have a huge as well research around this. And uh, I love as well the way that architects look at the world, but I like I like when they touch the urbanism. But I would like to see from, from your background, you touch the research from two major universities, then you went from for as well to look at the way China create cities and as well program cities, because they entire cities from the scratch, which is super impressive, especially for our patterns in Europe or even in the US, which has been very fast still. So I would like to touch this, how do you see this evolution? Through your career before you go more on the digital twins and, and as well the work you're doing in smart cities or smart cities technology, we can look at it in that way
1: the evolution from um,
0: the, the architecture from the last let's say the last twenty years, which is mostly most of your career the archi- the architectural revolution in terms of the way they're using tools the way they're looking at cities because we have looking at cities you have green cities, sustainable cities, just planning cities. And as well, right now we have smart cities, which is some of the concepts, just to mention some of them. I was just, how do you see this narrative around your career, looking at the industry as well?
1: Sure, I think the, the tools definitely have changed. Uh, I entered the profession in the mid nineties as one of the early, uh, or the earliest adopting generation that adopted CAD. So if you can imagine at that time, the, the the architecture profession, senior partners and firm leaders were not interested in learning CAD. That responsibility was given to the, the younger architects that were more technologically savvy or supposed to be. And so I kind of grew up in the profession using a couple of different tools. And I remember right from the very first month of my working at this particular firm, we were trained on one particular software. And then we hired somebody who sat across from me who came in from another firm, trained at a different software. And I remember how many issues uh, ensued from uh, having to train that gentleman over the next six, 12 months, having to translate between softwares. It was, I And mean, it was always an issue uh, you know, that I saw uh, as, as a problem in the profession from very early on. Um, as I moved through my career, I got interested in 3D uh, as an individual. Uh, I had my first exposure to 3D in, in the profession as a student at Cambridge, uh, a very profound experience in my, I think it was first or second term there at Cambridge as a 19-year-old. Uh, I, I uh, it was an extraordinary group of young architects, you know, England's finest, whatever. And uh, one young gentleman was so different from the rest of everybody else, and he was just a computer guy. You got to understand, all of us were painters, sculptors, uh, you know, and he was the computer guy. And people didn't even want to talk to him. You know, it was like, he was like the black sheep. You weren't even allowed to talk to the computer guy. This is what the traditional architectural profession thought of, of machines uh, in their profession at the time. So, but we did a, a project in Cambridge and he presented something incredible. It was uh, a, a design scheme a little library along a river. Um, fully rendered in 3D and superimposed on a photograph of this site, and it just blew everyone's mind. I mean, you can't imagine the response. I, I was I was shocked. It was a wow moment to me. I mean, that doesn't even exist, and we're able to look at it and study it like that. On, wow, that's incredible, even though it was kind of, you know, very early days of the technology. So yeah, I, I had been in love with that forever. Even as I became a designer, I began to explore all the available 3D technologies, for basically as design study tools, so I realized that working in three dimensions uh, teaches you much more than working in two. It's as simple as that. Uh, even in early in my career as an architect, I would design furniture. Uh, most architects would do would do plan sections, elevations. I would do 3D models in the machine room, and then we would study them in detail, and I found that by being able to have access to Every part of the model, um, you just learned more. Uh, it, it helps your mind complete the picture, and it, 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 it the power of three D as a as a language. I think I think was, that was the first time I discovered that. Hey, this this is a language we actually speak. So let's let's see if we can create some kind of a you know some type of a software around it, and, I, and then you know. The profession, more and more companies, Autodesk, Bentley, all these different companies producing different softwares, competing, Graphisoft, so many others in the AEC profession, countless others out there also competing to do different things. And I realized that there uh, There was going to be this kind of landscape of competing companies, if you will, uh, Which for a long time didn't matter until the projects got bigger. Now that the projects have gotten bigger and need all these things done, suddenly these companies and their lack of interoperability is a big problem. And, 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 and digital twin technology, mind you, we are one company, but there are hundreds of digital twin companies out there, right now, all doing things which are related, but we sit on top of that chaos, that's our job. Our job is to bring in all that chaos, the open public data, the IOT data, the BIM, the CAD, the GIS, all the project data, uh, the LIDAR, which could be scanning data, all these things together, real, and, and combine that into a single common framework that we can then use to run advanced analytics, whether it's predicting traffic, uh, predicting the return on investments, uh, predicting pedestrian flow, predicting flood simulations. When we have these data complete environments, uh, we can predict all kinds of things. So I think the movement towards digital twins was inevitable. And I, I do believe that, uh, it will be transformational for the industry. I, I, I don't want to be controversial, but there could be a point at which you just don't need BIM anymore. If the digital twins are really doing their job, you're probably not going to need all these tools. They'll end up absorbing all these tools eventually. So it has been quite a journey. Um, you know I, I think that over the next three five years you're going to see a big shift um in the way technology is bought and what's uh you know what's and how t- technology gets deployed but uh digital trends are kind of the promise i mean i'll conclude by saying you know back in 2005 six seven, people were talking about this idea of having this type of this type of uh, approach but the technology just wasn't there you know we spent many years building technology. We hired the CTO of Google Earth. Uh, After he left Google, he joined us. He was our first CTO, and he was the one who brought us into the gaming world. So we've always had great tech talent. And to to tell you how difficult it was back then, we had to build our own web browser, you know? So it's been a consistent uh, uh, series of challenges over the years that, until the last two years, it was really difficult to even deliver on the promise of digital trends. Uh, so this is probably why you haven't seen more to date, but we're entering a territory now where this is possible and this is happening. So it's getting interesting. And uh, urban scale digital trends, of course, you know, have great promise.
0: No, I, I'm completely believer, And actually, like you mentioned, at the moment there's an industry of around 20 to 30 trillion billion dollars at the moment in digital wins it's already happening and you are one of the leaders on that in the world so i think it's a good time then for you to tell us about City zenith uh, i love the title <laughs> although i don't spell it very well sometimes but um the, can you tell us about the company and the different products that you've been talking because i think it's quite impressive what you've been doing you just touch a bit on that uh, hiring the former uh, guy from google <laughs> that is amazing but as well you've been actually putting this in practice because like you said and I'm working with uh, smart cities. And I've been working with governments. And what makes me probably more nervous is the lack of digital and the lack of understanding data. So, so I think this is actually super important. But there's a huge component. And I'm glad that you have a fantastic background academic, because it's important as well to have the education. Because it's not just because, of course, uh, if you look at Neon, the $500 billion city uh, in, in, in Saudi Arabia, which actually, I've been somehow uh, getting partly involved. It's quite impressive, but there's a lot of things happening. But at the same time, there's a lot of velocities. So I would like to touch why did you create the company, touch that, but as well, what you guys are offering.
1: Right. Uh, Well, we founded in 2009 and we really began, uh, I think released our first version of a product in 2012. We actually did win the World Smart City Award in 2013 for, this product uh, when it was uh, just you know out of the box almost. And um, this was uh, the first, I think, recognition we really got uh, of any kind in the industry. It was very early, very, very early. The problem we were taking on, as I mentioned, was the problem of making sense of the massive amounts of data in the cities and their large projects uh, for us. We don't necessarily define a city as you know, New York and its boundary. A city for us can be a mini city too, or a city inside a city. For us, a university is a mini city. A healthcare campus is a mini city. A master development is a city. An airport, certainly a seaport, is a city with a lot of complex components. So we kind of define it like that. And the technology was designed to help make all these you know more efficient it went through multiple iterations between 2012 and more recently uh, five different versions were developed the first successful commercial version was called smart world pro which was launched in 2019 and it's 18 and first co- co- commercially deployed in 2019 and uh, we had a number of you know, good early projects to work on uh, one of the first was a new capital city in India, the city of Amravati, designed by Norman Foster and the planning firm out of Singapore, Surbana Jurong. And so we worked on that project, told us a lot about what we would need to do in the future with this product. Um, We were given commissions at the same time uh, with uh, companies that were doing large scale developments in these cities like CBRE, uh, like Cushman Wakefield, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We were given commissions by companies that were building infrastructure between these cities, like W.S. Atkins and Lango Rourke in the UK that hired us to provide a digital twin for a, a high-speed rail project linking Oxford to Cambridge. So the, the company today uh, is about to release uh, its most advanced version of its software in March called Smart World OS. Smart World OS is uh, our first ever digital twin operating system. Um, you can actually run a city off of Smart World OS for the first time. And the, we've done a lot of learning in the past few years. Um, the, uh, the things that we're working on today have just gotten bigger and better. Uh, one of the ones that we announced was a series of smart cities in the state of New Mexico for an energy services provider uh, called uh, the Agile Fractal Grid that will be, uh, I believe the first ever renewable energy powered cities in the US and they're all gonna be designed and operated using digital twin technology. Uh, We are, uh, our partners there are friends with the digital twin consortium and we are part of that as well. So we're helping to, Uh, accelerate the dialogue around digital twins in the United States using this type of this this project. we made other announcements about something that's more commercial in Orlando, the Orlando Sports and Entertainment District. It's a smart district. It is close to uh, downtown Orlando. It's where the Magic Play Basketball and other sports teams, again, they're going to use a digital twin there to help optimize the visitor experience before and during their experience of the uh, of the, of the, what they call smart district. Um, and then we're doing even things that we can't quite talk about for the US military, which are you know, highly sophisticated. You know, I can only say that the military builds a lot of buildings and has a lot of very sophisticated technology. So um, working with clients like these has made us better. I, one of the things i always tried to do was if we were this good, I tried to get a client that was this good, you know, so that, and, and that distance that we had to bridge It was always the challenge of every project, but if we could bridge that distance, um, we would end up this good by the time the job was over. And that's how I've been trying to make the company better and better by using these projects as learning devices for for the company. So theory being that after you do many, many, many projects, the platform becomes so rich with wisdom and learning from these projects that um, that it becomes very useful. I'll, I'll just conclude by mentioning that We launched a program recently called Clean Cities, Clean Future, in which we we promised and pledged to donate 10 digital twin models to different cities around the world uh, for their use in helping to decarbonize the, the built environment, helping building owners and infrastructure operators achieve their carbon neutral objectives. As you know, with the Biden administration coming in, the U.S. is now going down this path and we'll need tools. And uh, this will be one of the tools that they need. So already cities like New York, um, Melbourne, Orlando, others are going to be a part of this. Toronto, uh, we've been, I think we've received interest but really haven't even marketed it much yet but from countries all over the world, Turkey, India. uh, We want to keep it to 10 cities initially. To run effectively a a trial where we're going to expose these 10 cities to to digital twin technology we're going to give each of them a digital twin model and we're going to implement this use case in each of these cities and refine and perfect it and share the learnings between these cities for example perhaps an Orlando policy is particularly effective in Pittsburgh or you know something like that so um, as you mentioned not only do we have the problem of taking on climate change, it's really easy, Denise, for people to go out there today and say, hey, the world's falling apart. Shame on us. We need to get to net zero by 2050. Well, that uh, is
0: very impressive. Yeah, I, I want to step in. So let, let's just go, because, of course, both you and me can talk about this for hours and we know what you're talking about. So for our audience, um, for people that never heard about Digital Twins, which I think is a lot of people, um, I think it's, a, it's, I think, one thing that I... Even when I speak with the people from governments, okay, what is that? So, can you just, um, especially you, one of the biggest authorities in this, can you just uh, highlight a bit like a simple, I forget that especially because our audience has different layers of expertise, but it's always interesting. So, just a bit of oh, an overview sure. about the digital twins technology I mentioned is around at the moment $20 billion. And uh, just some of the things, and as well, if you can then pick, uh, I know that you have multiple products. But just give an example, because I think it's interesting for everyone. I think everyone should be into this, especially young people. But unfortunately, the universities are not teaching a lot of this. And even a lot of architects, I have a lot of family, uh, urbanists, they probably never heard about this, which makes me a bit no- worried for them and for the future.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's new for a lot of people, so that's perfectly fine. I think the, uh, you know, Gartner did call digital trends one of the top technology trends of the last two and three years of uh, running but it's still new, it's still in the early adoption phase. And at a high level, a digital twin in any industry is a virtual replica of physical buildings and infrastructure connected to the data in and around them. And they get used for a variety of purposes, generally for optimizing design and planning as well as construction of building and ultimately operations and fabrication. So uh, there are there's a generic, Definition. Digital trends are now used in the manufacturing industry to optimize the movements of people and, and objects on a floor in real time, combined pulling sensor data, LiDAR data, BIN data, and optimizing movement. They're used by the medical profession for pre-surgery analysis, digital trends of hearts and organs, things like that. Our focus is on digital trends for the built environment, buildings, infrastructure that you see around you. And the uniqueness of what we do is that our products designed specifically for the needs of large scale projects, buildings, infrastructure, cities, counties, even countries. Um, and so at a high level, that's what a digital twin is. And there, as you mentioned, it's a large market. I think it was something like $4 billion in 2019, but it's growing to something like $50 billion in the next five years. It's an incredible rate of growth. Um, And that's because it plays this role of consolidating the chaos that is now so prevalent in large-scale organizations and such an issue with large-scale projects. And the city, as you know, Denise, is about the biggest project in the world, right? So I think cities will definitely benefit from this type of technology, most likely deploying it at a smaller scale first before ratcheting it up.
0: No, fantastic, and thank you for that because I, I think it's always good, of course, you put it in a very good and fluent way and simple to get. So I, I want to, so one of the things that you mentioned on your website that is particularly interesting for me, and is one of the things that I'm particularly obsessed as well in my work, is that uh, this is your quote, our planet must accommodate the equivalent of 10,000 new cities by 2050. Just to keep pace with the projected population explosion, so I would like to elaborate on this and of course the solutions that we work on this because of course your experience in China where you saw cities being created from scratch that are right now competing with anything in the planet. And I think uh, all my research has been telling that China right now is 10 years ahead of the rest of the world including US. So in terms of technology digitization and as well the way they've been setting up cities, they have other challenges but from, from this level definitely they're running. I know that China, India as a massive right now project to create smart cities. um, That is massive. I'm working with Vietnam governments and there's a lot of other governments, even the countries that are, of course, very big countries. If you look at Vietnam is 100 million people. And of course, India is 1.3. So uh, just a bit of this background, how do you look at this? And as well, one question that I want to put to you is two questions and one is about your quote. The second one is, how do you see as well the challenge that come out of this digitalization? Because of course, one thing is doing a smart city in, in the US or Europe. The other thing is China. The other thing is uh, any other country like India or even Saudi Arabia, which has a lot of other, uh, let's put the uh, nuances, geopolitical nuances. <laughs> I don't want to go more deep, but I would like to hear your opinion specifically having this experience. And as well, a, a background that is, uh, well, being a Yale uh, alumni and Cambridge, you have a humanist background for sure. So I think I would like to touch that, that level.
1: Sure. Uh, I think that's probably true that China is ahead for a variety of reasons. It's been a national priority for China. China's been in growth mode for a long time, so it it, it needed to transform itself and uh, has done that. They've, they've um, been able to deploy sensitive technology, especially IoT, at will, largely without resistance, where in the US and Europe, there are a lot of political challenges to doing that, like installing uh, multinodal sensors uh, in a sh- place like Chicago or New York, a very complicated business due to privacy legislation and things like that. So um, I think there are going to be a lot of lessons to learn from the things that China is doing. I also have some hesitations around what I call pop up cities. Uh, as an architect and a humanist, they often don't work. Um, cities are usually built with a story, a heart, a legend, uh, a business, an industry, a trade route, a family. Um, but cities that have no purpose, uh, you know, and don't have a mission, um, you know, I'm not so sure about. I mean, in China's interesting. I read a book called Ghost Cities once about all the cities that were built in China that are completely unoccupied. So I think the bigger challenge, actually, Denise, is not so much about building new cities, even though that is the cool thing to do, okay? It's really about transforming our existing cities, the ones that we already have built. And my my vision for that is that What we can do with this digital infrastructure is create a mirror of that existing infrastructure, existing city, layer it on top and then just use that digital representation to improve it before we do anything at all. We can test everything from policies to vehicle flow using digital twin technology. Um, I agree that it favors cities that are already digitized to some extent. But the, there are easy ways of collecting data now. There are easy ways of capturing information. Um, and I would suggest that the way of rolling this out, again, is to uh, implement what I call our charter projects. Not necessarily giving charter cities, but charter projects. It's a bit similar, and this is how I think we're gonna transform the world into a bunch of smart cities. The idea that we're gonna pass this massive Global Smart City Act and everyone's gonna get smart, all eight billion of us at the same time, and the four billion of us living in the cities is not gonna happen. The, the real way to get there is to establish a strategy, find the leaders first, work with them to develop the standards, have the failings, use their resources and, and edge to create a framework that can then easily be scaled to everybody else, and those leaders our participants in what I call it charter cities or charter projects, that a charter project is, a, is, a, is, a, is a, either a city or part of a city where the rules change, where you say, we're going to make this area smart, and we're going to change the rules here. Um, China transformed its economy by creating charter cities called special economic zones. It created five that had different rules from the rest of China, and then they created six and then 10 and then 15 and then 25 and then 100 and then the whole thing was a special economic zone, okay? It's the same idea. Start with these charter special zones where we can change the rules, test things, make things work. Don't have to worry about failing at scale, right? And and do it in a controlled way. I think this is how smart cities will really actually progress, which is why I think that the all at one strategy be that countries like China might be deploying, may not be the most sensible thing to do because there's a lot of organic learning that has to happen when you deploy these projects. And um, I therefore don't think, Denise, that anyone has cracked this nut. I think that there's a lot of different countries cracking different parts of the nuts. Europe fundamentally is one of the most sophisticated, if not most sophisticated region of the world for cities. There's a high level of civic awareness, a high level of governance, Um, There is a lot of great technology in European cities and appreciation for tech and appreciation for preserving the old. Europe has learned a lot. The U.S. learned a lot of things, too, about scaling cities. China's learning things. All these things kind of can come together. I don't really see one model to to my mind today that is the model, And and I'm not expecting one. But I do think works, though, is irrespective of what model works for what country, is having this type of virtual infrastructure, to, to test whatever those scenarios are. That, that, that has to continue. So Africa, for example, where we may have less data in some cities, start with cities in Nigeria. We, are, we know many of those cities. Start start seeing what the issues are. Start seeing, you know, look, look at the data collection issues. Do something right, do something well, set it up for success, and then scale it when you, when you know what the needs are across other cities. I see that is, that, that's the rollout plan, Denise, really. It may sound like a lot of work, but I don't
0: see any other plan. No, no, you're completely right and I subscribe. And I think it's, it's great because uh, I think even the research you guys have been doing is really amazing. I know that you have limited time because I have probably 10 more questions. <laughs> so we might do a take two if you have time in the future. And probably there's a lot of things here that I'm particularly excited. So I want to probably last two questions if you still have time, at least one, depending. So one of the things is so... Um, Citizenis is particularly focused on smart cities, um, and of course, you build the, a couple of very high-profile um, technologies um, that have been quite amazing and cutting-edge in terms of, uh, especially the solutions like the the, the Citizenis technology, the Smart World Pro. Um, that is a city, situ- one of the first, dig- probably the first digital twin platform that really works, which is quite impressive. And you have a lot of fantastic projects. So one of the questions I have, especially because our audience is not so technical, uh, one of the things that I, I'm really excited is, so you touched the idea of starting by chunks and then take it to the next level. So in one of the articles that you have um, in one of the blogs of your article, there's something quite exciting. And I like a lot that we focus about that because we have a uh, well, there's a new administration over there in the U.S., which I think hopefully will calm down a lot of the tensions in terms of geopolitics. But the world is, though in one end, there's all these geopolitical um, fights. But like you mentioned, most of the world economy is centralized a lot around economical zones. And if you look at, in China, there's an economical zone or two, from Hong Kong to Shenzhen and all these areas. Then you have um, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, and then you have Middle East. Then you have Europe, and then you have US uh, West Coast and, and all the different things. And of course, you have as well, Sao Paulo or or, or uh, New Mexico and so forth. So one of the things that you mentioned, and this is a great article that you have, is the COVID-19 has been driving um, smart cities market boom. Um, with 500 urban areas, this is your quote, um, in the world expect to adopt digital twins. So can you elaborate on this? Because I think it's very important. And I would say that, Two parts on this question. One part is, of course, on the adoption of digital twin, which we touch. But I think it's the education from cities and governments that are, for me, the most important thing. Because, like you said, any city will have to become a smart city, whatever they want it or not. Because it's the only way to optimize. It's the only way to use all this fourth industrial revolution, society 5.0, whatever we call uh, call it, to try to actually use it for good and as well to to optimize our. Um, experience. But COVID-19 has been disrupting a lot of these things and of course in one end is accelerating digital transformation because of course most of the economy can only run digital. I would like to hear your views on this and as well uh, some insights about this article and for our audience that I think it's quite exciting what you wrote here and as well. I suggest everyone to go to your website because there's a lot of great research there as well.
1: Well thank you. Yeah we we try to keep up to speed on a lot of the latest thinking and Uh, There was an article uh, that we participated in uh, uh, that mentioned that the world will uh, major cities, the world's major cities will deploy digital twins over the next several years, and as many as 500 cities will do that. I think that's expected. We're some of the projects that we've been involved with, for example, I mentioned the one in India. We were using a digital twin to bring together all the 3D design models of, of multiple architects working from multiple countries on a single smart district in this city where the chief minister had told us that we need to use this technology to simulate how we will reduce street temperature by at least eight degrees Celsius during summer. Simple use case, difficult one. And the architects were able to integrate, drag and drop their building models from outside into this model and run scenarios you leveraging an artificial intelligence based tool that we integrated that would run climate simulation. So they could actually see if we put a building this tall here, we have a pergola, we have shading up, If we do trees, here is the impact. And we were able to simulate that result before we built anything. Now, imagine the impact on the carbon footprint when you can reduce the overall load consumption requirement for that district is significant. These types of simulations are gonna make digital trends not only a good idea, but essential as cities get more efficient. They're gonna to have to. I don't know how else Denise cities crawl out of the fiscal trouble that they're in unless they become more efficient on multiple levels and start thinking about themselves differently. It's possible that cities will even begin uh, developing digital twin infrastructure and selling services you know, off of this infrastructure that they create to the private sector. I mean, it's many ways in which this type of thing can not only be an efficiency tool, but a revenue source for cities and, and, the, and the private sector would happily pay if they're getting the value that they need. So I see, I see that, that this it could change the whole model. You know, I, I, I would love to see digital twin technology take a much more of a central role where everyone pays a, a small toll to be part of it. Um, but it's accessible right and I think it, it, as you mentioned I haven't seen a lot of really full implementations of this but we are working on I think some of the closest things to full implementations of which I'm aware and you know it only continue to get more robust you know over the next few years.
0: No, fantastic so I think my last question I know just respecting your time and then, definitely, I want to do a second round. So the, you touch AI. So AI is one of my areas, and I've been very obsessed with that. And I think, uh, for instance, yesterday, actually, it's funny that you mentioned military, because I actually uh, interviewed uh, one one person from the CIA. And I actually interviewed recently um, a general. So one of the things I've been finding out is if you look at history, of course, uh, there's all the technology, there's all the evolution, but there's humanity <laughs> and our challenges. So um, one of the challenges definitely around cities is definitely uh, that how all this part of the digital twins and especially for this revolution, you mentioned IoT, but especially AI, is going to be transforming everything. And I think the digital twins, I even go further, because you're talking about digital twins for cities, but it's going to be digital twins for each of us. Because mm-hmm. I can see my body and, and even if I don't want to, actually, I don't want to think about it. But at the moment, if I get to 23 and me, I can know my probability of dying younger or not, of getting cancer. And if you get enough technology, I can know too much. Probably I don't want to know, even if I know I can get it. So sure. this is much more complex than just that. And as well, there's, there's for instance, what is happening in, in China, that don't go political, but purely from a technology and, and strategic level, that is the mass surveillance And of course the credit score and things like that. So having this humanist hat, like you mentioned, and as well, two of the leading universities in the world uh, in terms of your background, but as well building cutting edge technology, as a last question and a bit humanistic question, how do you see the, in one end the technology, the ethics, and as well, the solutions for the problems we have, and as well, this kind of disruption because as Professor Arari says in the last, one of his actually the last two books, The Homo Deus and The 20 Lessons for 20th Century, and as well, Ray Kurzell, we are probably 10, 20 years ahead of, well, I would say that we are already getting into singularity. But even yesterday, um, there was a think tank uh, in the US that just highlighted that, um, the well, humanity is not prepared to stop uh, an AI, super intelligence AI. And as well, the US government at the same time, actually, the Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google and still part of the board, said that we need to leave an AI. To, to, we have to leave AIs to test military control because they will be wiser than humans. I want to touch this because it's, when it comes to cities, this is happening, Okay, and, and of yeah. course, in a small scale. But this is very complex. And I think architects are key because you guys make the bridge between heart, technology, and planning. And normally that's especially the great artists and the great architects like from Michelangelo to you mentioned Foster they make the the marks of history normally it's an architect that makes the biggest building even if might be terrible in a dictatorship or it might wonderful in a great country so I just want to like that bridge because that's for me one of the biggest challenges and there's also something we need to discuss to avoid the issues and the dystopian part that one of these technologies can lead us.
1: Well, artificial intelligence is is is, is you know, really the, the future. Um, with all this data now, we're definitely um, you know there's there's a there's there, there are thousands of companies that now are using what they call AI tools to do different things in this industry. Um, the I think with cities there's a lot still to be learned. Um, generally, of course, I think AI will help us do a lot of things, from optimizing traffic in real time to predicting uh, um, energy consumption, uh, across, you know, f- for example, federal assets and annualized so we can adjust, uh, you know, centralized systems on the fly to meet real time demand, uh, to predicting crime, you know, and which again is using artificial intelligence to things like this. Chicago has got tools here in this town where they're using artificial intelligence based tools to try to predict who's going to commit a crime next and where. So, Uh, I think that, I think, I'll make a bold comment here. I think that the alliance of Western states, Australia, Europe, Japan, United States, needs to come together on some common framework to understand the implications of artificial intelligence and what they intend to do about it, From, from establishing cybersecurity standards to what are the do's and don'ts the types of research that they allow and those that they don't allow for different reasons. There are many types of research that need to be allowed encouraged and heavily invested in, like some of the ones I mentioned. There also needs to be some type of governing body, both nationally and internationally, which looks at this for this very reason. I think there is a threat that, um, and you and you see some of the world's technology that you're talking about, that, that, that um, these tools can be misused, um, even the ones that exist right now. Some of the crime prevention tools, for example, people say are unfair because you're going after somebody before they've done anything, you know. Um, so, uh, I, I think there's the issue of surveillance, for example. Uh, in China, you don't have a choice, in much, and there are other countries like that, too. In the U.S., it's a big issue. And m- my question is, what's the line? And I've been thinking about this for years, you know, do we think, you know, on the one hand, I would not want to live in a city where my every move is being surveilled and my every move is being scored, for example, Um, that would seem to be forcing a certain behavior on me in a certain, which is not so bad if it's about crossing the street on time, when the light tells me to or things like that, which are basic civic things any citizen should do. But the way I should think politically, the things I can, shouldn't post about, these things also affect your credit score in China. And I think these are things that veer into the political. So really what you're trying to do is use technology to create a populace of like-minded people. That's actually what they're trying to do. And to me, that's a huge danger. Uh, uh, I, I don't think that China's, I believe that China's growing middle class is going to tolerate that. Indefinitely, and I, some of the things that the current president is doing are things that I think will come back to, to bite him or his, or his successor at some point. That said, in the U.S., we under surveil many parts of our cities, in my view, and we have massive crime problems. Where we have no idea what happened, and we, and no one will talk. So, but my question is that if you were to introduce these types of more kind of Um, you know, um, um, eye on the sky technologies, what is the social contract then with the people who are the subject of the surveillance? For example, I would be bothered if I was being surveilled everywhere, but if I was living in a neighborhood on the south side of Chicago, and I knew I had access to the same surveillance footage so that if something happened, not only would the cops see it, but I would see it too and that would be my right, I might feel more safe, you know? So, but they don't really have that right. So I think, you know, in in democracies, there's gonna have to be a rethinking of the social contract. And I think people will have to give up this idea that no one's ever gonna look at me. There's too many of us now, okay? Um, This country, we were a country of a few million people when it was founded, we hundred and 350 million people now dense densities, uh, I think that's going to have to be the, in the course of accepting more surveillance, in the course of accepting being monitored more, in the course of, of being accepted being sort of traced more, there's going to have to be a new transparent social contract. And when, for example, the Obama administration was doing in tracing phone calls of private citizens was not the way to do it. I think I would rather say, listen, your phone calls can be traced. That's it. We're not going to tell you who, why, when, or how, but they can be. Be honest, you know, and, uh, and, and I think that was missing from that, you know, and, and then you get distrust, of course, between. So as long as these, these tools are implemented in a forum of transparency and honesty and mutual discussion, I think that they're going to be good.
0: No, I'm completely with you and I think you made a very good points especially in the alignments before be- between countries and organizations. Because I think that's the problem is that if first, if you had like a, a global EU, United Nations and digital twins and smart cities I think we could actually I think it would be good for everyone because of course like you mentioned there's fantastic things happening in China, <clears throat> there's fantastic things happening in Europe with first the UI alliance uh, there's a lot of initiatives but the point is that sometimes no one speaks with each other that's the problem and I think we cannot stop this. We might, we might have our own neighborhood, but we are too much interconnected. But well, I think it's a much bigger and that. Uh, I just want to touch that. So I want to thank you for your time. I know that we pass a bit to your time availability, but it's a great, uh, great insights. I um, will put the links to cities that is which is a fantastic platform. And congratulations for your work. Definitely, I'm sure you're going to be having other opportunities. I, I, there's a lot of questions that I have. And um, I urge everyone listening to us to look at your work and the work of your company. Thank you so much,
1: Michael. Thank you, Denise, for having me. Wonderful conversation. Look forward to speaking again.
0: Cheers. Thank you. Cheers.